Hi, it's Tim Bosfield, uh, director, guest artist, actor uh, for life, 30-something, West Wing. I had a great time talking to Jeff on Spoiler Country, and I think you'll have a good time listening. It's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal of the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Sp- Wow. United Armies of the Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That, that right there is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, this is actually, not actually, this is really exciting. This is, it's Timothy Busfield, isn't it? It, it is, it is. And Jeff the Get or Big Hoss, whatever you want to call him, got to sit down and, and chat with him about his career in acting and, and talk politics for a little while, which just kind of, Interesting how that comes up these days. If you talk, I found that on our interviews when you ask, because we always ask people how how they're dealing with COVID and the, yeah. and the lockdown and stuff, and they end up sometimes going into politics. <laughs> and it definitely did on this one. Yeah, this guy has been in everything, man. He was so much. He was in Revenge of the Nerds. Oh God, <laughs> he plays the uh, the guy that plays the violin. And oh, oh yeah, yeah. Is yeah. it the violin or is he, does he play the keyboard? I think it's the violin. And then. Um, he was, dude, he's in 30-something. And 30-something yeah. was a, it was a show back in the early 90s. And it was actually right. a really big hit. It was a big drama series at, you know, it's a nighttime soap opera kind of thing. Yeah. And there's a scene that he's like reading a story to his son or daughter that for some reason really stuck with me as I've gotten older. Oh, yeah? And it's just kind of funny. And I think I've. For lack of a better term, I think I've romanticized it in my head of what that's <laughs> how that scene plays out. You know what I mean? Because he's like acting out right. a book or something, and it's it's kind of weird. But I always think of this scene, and it's from Thirty Something, and it's him. And it's kind that's of funny cool. that you know when I saw that he was coming on, I just couldn't I couldn't make it. So I was really bummed. And yeah, it's kind of cool that Jeff got to sit down with him. Yeah, and and he won he won an Emmy for Thirty Something as well. Back in yeah. 91. When my brother turned uh, so. 30, this was 20 some odd years ago because he's over 50 now. When he turned 30, I got him a video of 30 something. Oh, geez. Yeah. I, gave, <laughs> I awesome. bought him an episode on VHS. That's hilarious. Back when VHS was still a thing 20 yep. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> VHS was still a thing. So, well, why don't we just sit back and listen to uh, Timothy Busfield in his own words? Come 
listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have Timothy Busfield, you know from the West Wing and For Life. Thank you for coming on, Mr. Busfield. I'm happy to be here, Jeff. So how are we doing in this today's weird, weird world, Mr. Busfield? You know what? We're yeah. I am not a, a a big person to look back. There's a lot of things that I think needed improving. So I'm going to look at where we're at in the pandemic and think this is an opportunity to evolve and grow. We are healthy, which is the most important thing. Melissa is healthy. I'm healthy. Neither one of us have had it, and neither one of us have have antibodies. So you know we're waiting vaccine or constant care or or maybe it'll come through us or maybe it'll hit us so you know we're like everybody else that is most everybody out there that hasn't been infected we don't know what to do so what what this the time that you have are you spending are you finding it more productive or do you find yourself harder to be productive given that you're with the lockdown and everything else is it harder or easier to get your work done you know, it's really interesting. It's really hard to get done the work that I did before. Before, you know, uh, key, like this interview, keeping on track, keeping the most simple things on track until the last second, those things that were sort of routine for me, those things have sort of gone the other way. The new Evolve Me and planted a garden with my wife and we have chickens and the lawn. And, you know, I mean, I am now a farmer uh, more than I'm an actor or director. And I, I had no skills there at all. But <laughs> I, I went total. We went DIY and and got, you know, stayed busy doing stuff like that. And now I'm in, you know, in the studio here and we've got a podcast, Melissa and I called Gilbert Busfield. We're on iTunes. We're Spotify, we're all over the place, and now we're adding camera to that, and we'll be live streaming. So, you know, I'm more focused on that stuff than I would be on reading scripts, breaking down scripts that I'm directing, breaking down scripts that I'm acting in. You know, it's a, it's it's a different muscle. Yeah, I must say, when I used used to think that if I didn't have work in the day, that when I got home there'd be so much writing I would have time to do, and I'd be so motivated to do these other things. But I found since the lockdown. I actually find myself less likely to do my work than when I was having an active job during the day. And it's a very weird change, um, change of events, you know, and definitely changed how I thought about myself and my work habits. Yeah, it's terrible. And there's, and getting back, you know, getting back to people, I don't know why that's a, why that's so hard now. It's just getting, getting returning calls and, and, you know, I'm, and not for anything personal or emotional. I just, I'm just not getting to it. Yeah, I must say I, I've I must say I've lost track of time. My day job, I'm a high school teacher, so we're doing uh, remote teaching, and I find it's much harder to get a sense of time because it seems many ways so timeless because your whole day is free. What do you teach? I teach uh, high school English at a therapeutic school for special needs kids. Oh, good for you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It, it's pretty tough. I teach up in uh, in Providence. And it means tricky. The kids usually have issues with anxiety. A lot of are, are um, autistic. But, you know, they, they at least usually are well-behaved and want to do what you want, want to do what you ask them to do. But it's definitely remote teaching has definitely changed the dynamic as well for the classroom and how you interact with the students, who I think the separation of class from being in front of them does allow them to 
I think to be a little more likely to slack a little bit than if they were in front of you. So it, it, it's, it's, everything has changed. I mean, when they talk about the importance of going into school, I get it. I see it. However, obviously I would rather not get coronavirus because I'm also diabetic. So <laughs> it, it's not a positive. <laughs> yeah. That's a, please stay away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, you're the ones we're, we're trying to protect, you know, and so everybody should be concentrating on anybody that has a precondition, a uh, pre-existing condition. Those are the ones that, that, you know, look, this whole pandemic, it's real simple to me. The team says, let's wear a mask. Yep. If you are saying, don't wear a mask, we don't believe in the mask. You're just simply on the other team. Exactly. Team America, police. Uh, <laughs> we, we say wear a mask. Wear a mask. Don't infect people. Be conscious of your surroundings. And let's all work together and kick this thing's butt. But in America, we have this massive gulf between the American, Team America, and this sort of anti American, we're American movement. You know, the ones that say, you know, we want it back the way it was racist, hate, white against black. We want that back. That's yep. not American to me. So that's un American. Uh, the land of the free, where all, all of us are supposed to be equal in God's eyes, not the judgmental country with a dictator. So that's my take on it. Uh, I'm sure people are like, oh, man, that's cool. <laughs> Look at, I knew he was a, I knew he was a pinko, commie, <laughs> uh, whatever. And I'm not, really. I mean, I'm much more moderate than people would think. But in this environment, the team is not, the team, team America is not team Trump. So it's a different team. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I, I what I found most um, horrifying is that at my school, when they start in September, the students are going to have, because they're pretty sure they're going to open in September, the masks are going to be optional for students, which I think is absurd. I mean, it, kids are not known for their sense of judgment. Why would you make it optional? And I thought, and I always think to myself, if people, the adults, got their heads together, wore their masks, this wouldn't be a situation where we would have solved it in May. We'd have solved it in June. And the same people who are complaining about hating to wear the masks could have solved this months ago if they just got their heads in the right direction. Yeah, I don't know if they, look, it came from the top. You know, I mean, if at the top, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we could have absolutely be, we'd, we'd have been an easy street right now. If, if, if Trump would have said, and not intimidated everybody around him. Hey, I've talked to the leaders of New Zealand and other countries that are doing it right. And what we're going to do now is we are going to lock down. We are going to wear masks. We're going to do this. We're going to do it the way Cuomo did it. Had Cuomo been the president of the United States, we'd all be back at work right now. I, I definitely would like to think so. Part of me wonders if there's a 43% of the country the Trump voters, obviously, who would go out of their way to go against any attempts at, let's say, forward thinking, science-based thinking, no matter uh, what. I mean, part of me wonders if Obama was president, would the Republican or people who vote Republican purposely go against what he wanted just because it was him who asked? No, I don't think I think there's a, a pot. I think you got to look at the Republicans in two different ways. I think you got to look at the Republicans, which are like my business manager and a lot, most everybody that works for uh, any, any in finance, 
any any financial manager, they're all conservative. There's conservative Republicans, and there are the big, the Roger Ailes Republicans. Right. And the Roger Ailes Republicans, I agree, wouldn't matter who the president is. If he was Democrat, they'd be saying it. What you're seeing is the, just the conservative Republicans, which are what I was raised. My dad was that. My dad was conservative. I'm from Michigan. There's a lot of people out there that are raised conservative. That doesn't mean that they're racist or anti this or anti that. You're not a bad person if you're Republican. You're not. You're just conservative for the most part. That's the way it was with Obama until Roger Ailes decided to infect television with Fox News and Fox News mentality, which was, hey, even though we wouldn't eat dinner with the people we're talking to, we're, we know they're angry. We're going to keep them angry. The ones that just want to hate, we're going to keep those guys uh, uh, happy because we're going to talk to them about how screwed up things are all the time with whatever. Now, not that CNN doesn't do that, <laughs> but that group, which is not necessarily indicative of the entire Republican Party, is a big, the bigoted, radical, and I know radical gets used for the radical left, but that, that group, they're unmoving about anything. You can't tell that group to wear a mask. You can't tell that group that black and white is equal. You can't tell that group. They don't ask for directions, that group. That group just like, I got it. We're going to do this. <laughs> and yeah. the flag's a good old thing. Look at the South. The South is coming along slow, slow. <laughs> it's the South. And I went to college in the South. My family's from the South. I went to high school in Arkansas. I get it. Yeah. I Show me a Southern liberal and I'll show you a buddy. They're my yeah. buddy. You show me a Southern Republican that is on the fence, you're my buddy. I got no problem. You were raised Republican. I got no problem with that. You show me, which is what we're getting, is this, even if they're not in the South, that sort of rednecky, we we don't like, we hate that bullshit, mm -hmm. that guy, they're not going to listen to anybody. Now, I think that kind of brings up a question that I recently was debating with somebody um, who I knew. The idea of if you are a Republican, you're not necessarily a Trump uh, far-right Republican. Are you guilty by association on some level, or is there, or like, have you, or have you reached a point where we're on teams instead of, let's say, ideologies almost? Where is your, if you're a Republican, you're now all the way on the outside of a Trump, and you're not willing to kind of recognize the issue in your party and move to the middle or vote blue, as it were? Well, we're seeing that now, I think. I think what, you're, what we're seeing now is, is a lot of the Republicans that are approaching the election. Look, the Democrats blew it, as far as I'm concerned. They blew, uh, they blew the whole thing. My wife was, was the eighth district nominee in Michigan for as a Democrat. She had all of her... her you know, people or campaign manager, everybody at the house. And I said, Trump's going to win. And they laughed at me. And I said, no, he's going to win. Here's why he's going to win. He's going to win because the people here, and I was living in Michigan, the people, all my friends, 
and and the people that that are here, they they saw their auto industry collapse. They don't want their money to go away. And Trump's a gambler. And and even though they're conservative, they wanted a gambler. They wanted somebody that was going to hang on to their money. They didn't want somebody that was just going to let it go or or fold. And Trump promised that he was going to bring production back to the Midwest. And that's all he needed at that time to get elected because people it was all about money. And so the Democrats, they attacked him from the get go so hard that they didn't let him hang himself. They didn't let anybody have a biased point of view on his actions. The Democrats lined up all the machine guns and all the howitzers, and they all did Bill Maher's thing and just brutalized him from the beginning. And they continue to do it. That made a great deal of the Republican Party protective of their vote, saying, let's see, let's see. Uh, uh, And we are now going to even in more force support our president. Now, as the pandemic is hit and as the election gets close, they've had a chance to look at the four years. And I think it becomes very apparent to anybody out there that he has great skills in business. He understands it. He buys a lot. He sells a lot. He goes bankrupt a lot. And, and he, he's successful a lot. I mean, he really gambles and rides that well. That's what Donald Trump does well. And he did it well in the United States, bringing production back. He did that well. But the president of a corporation has to understand everybody's job and has to constantly prepare themselves for liabilities and how can they handle liabilities outside of financial. And the Republican Party and why we're seeing the polls the way they are is the people in the Republican Party that aren't the Roger Ailes angry Republicans. The conservative Republicans are saying, you know what? He's a one. He's only economics. He can't handle the pandemic. We don't want him in charge of war. We don't want him in charge of race. We don't want him in charge of any of that stuff. He can't do it. He's not qualified. He doesn't have the chops. He doesn't have the tools. What he has the tools to do is Mnuchin's job, (laughs) which is what he should have had in the first place. But he wouldn't have been able to influence change from there. So, you know, Biden is saying, which is a notoriously Democrat thing to do, by the way, that Trump takes credit for, bring production to America. That's what the Democrats would like, is for us to be contained like that. It's the Republicans that said we'll make a lot more money for the rich if our production runs to other countries. It was the Republicans that created all of these relationships with all the countries that are building all of our products. That wasn't a Democrat thing. So... Biden is saying what is the way things should be. Keep it here. Uh, now, now a, a lot of Trump is also known, obviously, as kind of a snake oil salesman. Uh, what do you think American people, what do you think made us so, as a, I say us, as a American people, I mean, obviously, I could, uh, well, even though I'm a liberal, I, you know, you include yourself with the, the mass. What made, do you think made us 
so willing and so gullible? Do you think they we always were that way and just took someone to exploit it? Or do you think things have changed or maybe even education wise that um, have made people more or less analytical in, in, our, in their thought process? Well, you know, if, if you look, we've all, it's always been this way. I mean, I don't really think it's that much different than it's always been. What you had before was you had in the, in the, in, back in the old days, the press protected the far right and far left, right? The, the press kept things to news and in the middle and avoided sensationalism. When it was ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was it, the sensationalism, divorces and this and that, all the tabloid stuff, that wasn't a part of our news system. It was basic Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite, detached reporting. They called themselves reporters on the news. Now, what you've got is a free-for-all of the lowest of the low. And then the high is now competing against the low, which has brought them low. So CNN, which I, I watch CNN, MSNBC, I watch Fox, I watch them all. They're just banging on Trump. They're one note. And they, they've lost the detached. This is just the news. So people go with them. I watch CNN, so I'm mad at Trump. I watch Fox, so I'm mad at the Democrats. Uh, because people are riling up emotions. You weren't allowed to express your opinion when we were growing up. It wasn't a naive thing. It was just simply the news people really were there to present the news, and they'd be subtle about it, uh, and the, they'd pick stories that made them decidedly pro-right or pro-left from the network down. But I just think it's, I think it's this tabloid, you know, it's, a, it's cable. And when television went from, and not that it's a bad thing, because humanity is evolving. When you're looking at Black Lives Matters right now, it's evolving and cable has helped to see a lot more of what's going on, but it's also allowed for TMZ and Fox and places like that to only talk about the negative and stir up hate, which is what Roger Ailes did. I was a part of that, that mini series, the loudest voice and reading. That's fantastic. I was just blown away by the script. I was like, I had no idea this (laughs) made Donald Trump. And he did. It, that was, by the way, that was a fantastic series. I actually really did love it. My question actually would be, though, do you think there's a way back from where we are now, socially, especially so socially, as far as bringing the country together, or even politically in viewing, or beginning to become more rational again on how we view sides of different issues and, and and maybe peel back some of the toxicity going on. I think so. I think we're going to improve. I think the whole world's going to improve from this. The whole world we have. The best chance we've ever had. Uh, Look at how everybody came together. Really look at how most everybody came together. People now are enjoying staying home. We're not the quick fix that was there before. Everybody was buy, go to a movie, buy this, buy that, watch this, listen to that, go do this, go do that. And we were outrunning ourselves. We weren't allowed to relax and, and be in our bodies as much because we were go, 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 go. And stimuli, stimuli, stimuli. Well, I think now people have kind of said, hey, I kind of like being at home. Just hanging out with my wife, watch TV is great. The kids, great. And I think that all the values that the right 
wants to says that they want to protect for their base, which are family, traditional family, heavily religious, stay at home. That happened because of the pandemic. People just stopped hurting other people in many ways. And I think we're going to leap forward. I really do. I do not believe that we're going to financially leap forward. I do not believe there's a way back for theater. I do not believe there's a way back for a lot of business. I think we're going to have a new humanity. I think it's going to be a better humanity at many levels. I think half the people are going to be better off and half the people are going to be angry, just like it is right now. But for those of us that, you know, would attempt to not be haters and are going to roll and try to adjust or still try to entertain or, or perform for all people out there, there is a future for us. It's not what it was before. And I think the idea of going back to what we did, had before is futile. And I think that's going to create more suffering. I think we need to make adjustments going forward based on what's realistic, not what it, 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 not hold on. The idea that Trump says we're going to be back and better than ever is all money. It's all running for office. What we really need right now, which is what Biden is saying, and I'm not saying it because Biden's saying it, but Biden's right. We need to be, we need to do it a new, we need a new, we need to, we need to make it better. We need to do it a new way. And we need to be smart about making all these liabilities, turning them into assets, not ignoring it and then holding fast once what once was, which is very conservative in its thinking. We need to evolve and move forward. See, my always concern with um, people is that we have an amazing ability to adapt to things quickly and adjust. So as we have adjusted and got comfortable and got used to the new COVID rea reality, my concern is that we will unadjust just as fast once it's no longer there for us. Because our memories tend to be extremely short term and we tend to um, forget what we just happened. You know, you, you know what I'm kind of saying? Yeah, but, but don't you think that the circumstances are going to make that not possible? I'm trying this way to answer. I, I imagine it may not, I, though there is hope that, in my opinion, if you could get a vaccine that does work better than 70% of the time that, as Fauci has suggested, if you could make it so it is safe to go back to theaters and stadiums and everything like that, I think people would quickly seem to forget, just as if, when things in this, my, I'm from Rhode Island, so when things started to decrease as far as COVID cases, you started seeing people go back quickly to their old behavior, which is why it's shot back up again. And I do find people have a tendency to quickly forget and then go back to what they wanted to do and, and try to adjust to what they you know, prefer. Yeah, that will happen in, in a great many sex sectors. The, the, the reality is, I believe in America, that it's too late. It's too late for that to what people, it, it won't work. You, I know you want to just go back to the life as you had it before, but it's not working. That's why places are closing down again. That mentality is just not going to be able to act. I, I don't, I really don't believe Jeff. I think what's going to happen is that people are going to try to be like you're saying, and it's going to get beaten down. What do you mean with schools closing again? What do you mean baseball is off? What do you mean there's no football till 2021? 
I think people are going to realize, I think we're like right in the early part. Remember in the beginning of World War Z? Brad Pitt's having breakfast with his family and hanging out. Everybody's laughing and having a good time. In the background are reports of whatever, and nobody's paying attention. Everybody thinks life's great. It's normal. Yeah, there's something going on, but nobody's paying attention. We're there. We're still in that that position of a monster movie where everybody thinks it only ate one of them. It's not going to eat me. (laughs) It's not going to go. We're just going to keep going. Everything's going to be okay. In six months, people are going to be hungry. People are going to be out of money. The government can't just keep printing money. And people are going to realize I got two choices. I can be mad about and want the way things the way they were, or I'm going to adjust. I lost a limb here. I need to now be not be sad and upset that I lost a limb that was appropriate and that suffering and that pain that was all part of losing a limb. But now I have to accept the fact the limb is gone and I need to learn how to walk with three limbs, you know, with one leg and only and survive with three limbs. I have to figure out how to move forward. That is only going to happen when it has to. And we're just not there yet. We're in the beginning of this. And people, I understand, are optimistic about how it's going to change. 70% of the people taking uh, 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 the inoculation is impossible. 26% tops. 26% tops on the planet at right away. I'm guessing. I'm pulling that out of my butt, Jeff. But I'm saying at the most, and that would be massive for if a quarter of the planet said, hey, if I inject this thing that we don't know if it's going to give me polio in three years or not, but I'm taking it. You know what I mean? I'm taking it and I'm I'm moving forward and I'm not going to worry about side effects and I'm not going to worry. I'm going to jump into this vaccine even though I feel fine. In a religious world, in uh, America a hundred years ago, when most people went to church or mosques and, 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 uh, and went and practiced and would listen to, you know, a preacher or a priest or, you know, uh, the, you'd have somebody, uh, the Muslims or the Jews or the Hindus, they'd have their major dude that they go listen to, and that person would influence his congregation to go do shots and would use that power in that religion to make them fall into line. Well, we don't have that anymore. We just don't. People don't go to church. The church is with the American theater. The church is sunk. The American theater is more than likely sunk. The things that have changed are tough. So I don't know how the word gets out to make people feel safe that they can take the vaccine, the, the vaccine, the vaccine. <laughs> no, no, I, I must say it is definitely the vaccine does seem to be like if, it was, if this was a movie or TV show, like that one magic tool that everyone's looking for that will at the end of the movie solve everything. It does seem that many people are hoping for that. And obviously 
there is definitely some difficulty, especially when I hear about what they're potentially pricing it as, which seems like it would be a, a wealthy person's vaccine because I think they're comparing three four hundred dollars for the vaccine, which is uh, if, if it does come out, which is would be horrible. But I, I think it, what I find kind of fascinating just talking to you is that you do seem to be so well versed on so many of these issues, and I, I was wondering is a lot of the stuff that you've chosen to do, like For Life, like The West Wing, like The Loudest Voice, do, are you cho- do you choose pieces that you do find as politically important? When I act, when as an actor, especially having uh, uh, my 20s were strong with nerds and 30s were strong with West Wing and Field of uh, West Wing was probably my 40s, but Field of Dreams, 30-something, you know, I mean, I, I Broadway, A Few Good Men on Broadway, I sort of touched... Uh, enough of the things I wanted to to achieve or close to as an actor that when I became, when the script started to become just either procedural or one note or without a message, that's when I started directing more. When I couldn't find the 30-somethings or the, the West Wings, they just weren't out there. And I thought, well, I can hide as a director and I need to become a better filmmaker so I can make a a guest artist, a film that I can produce and direct. I need to go learn that. When I did that, I, I, especially in television, I stopped concerning myself with what the message is or the the, the power I that I was, what I was trying to do now as a director was make sure that everybody watching leaned in. Uh, a director doesn't have the flexibility unless you're one of those rare very specific directors of saying, I don't care whether the audience likes it or not. Uh, A director or producer, our job is to make sure that the people get their money's worth or their time's worth back, and they don't feel they wasted their time. And according to Thomas Shlami, who ran the West Wing and Sports Night as the president of the Directors Guild, he would talk to me a lot and a mentor of mine about getting the audience to lean in. So important. And as a theater producer, theater director, that's all I care about. As a theater producer in Sacramento, producing 100 plays for children and adults, the only thing I concerned myself with was did they get their money's worth? And were they restless? Did they lean in? Did they lean in? Did they like it? And did they lean in? Those are the things that I, I concerned myself with. As an actor, athletically, I'm not in charge of any of it. So I'm my work today is to make sure that an audience can recognize themselves in my character and that they can relate so they, they enjoy the journey of the story more that the producers and the director are doing. So I'm going to tailor choices, not only what I pick, like Loudest Voice, yeah, I want to be in a piece about Roger Ailes and and work with Naomi Watts. That's a great thing. I'd love that. But I loved what it was about. And that's why you take things. Uh, For Life, that's why I took For Life. Almost Family, I like the role in Almost Family. Because what would happen, what would I do if I found out that my daughter was not my daughter, but the doctor who was supposed to use my sperm in her, used his own sperm in her. I liked that. That was compelling to me. But being able to not take a lot of roles because I don't connect to them has been, I've been very fortunate 
with the directing and the producing that I haven't had to do that. Yeah, because I find it fascinating, especially uh, one of the more recent ones, For Life, which is an incredible series, by the way. It, it, it was so well done, so intelligently um, written. And I thought to myself, I know it probably wasn't planned, obviously, when it was started, because it obviously it started before November. But it seems so timely with what's happening in the in our in dealing with the social issues right now, issues with the issues of the police, unlawful arrests, racial tensions. It seems so perfectly timed. And part of me was wondering. In being part of that show, do you see it as something that does change minds or at least opens doors to people saying, this is a real thing. This is what people go through. You know, we, we were, we, we, we made it through the first year. We got picked up for the second year. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. We'll be back on ABC once we're supposed to start shooting here in a few weeks if Nicholas Pinnock can get in the country. <laughs> uh, and wait, 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 where is he? He's, they're both British. Nicholas oh. and Dara are British. So she was Game of Thrones. He was Marcella, you know, uh, great actor, great to work with for life. So we need it. We need it so bad. Now, not only because of the Black Lives Matter of it all, that we, our perception of ourselves not being racist when it's so subtle uh, that it's crept into our daily lives. It, it, I have, I, it's in me. I don't know if you can be white in America and not have it somewhere conditioned into you. So right now, what that show is saying, and more importantly than probably ratings or anything, is that our legal system is putting a lot of African-Americans and other people in prison that don't belong there. And that needs to be fixed along with everything else. And the pandemic is going to help us fix that a little bit. But that show, when in doing that show, what I learned about Roger Ailes and how he created Donald Trump and created, you know, Fox News, I've learned on this show about you know, how injustices happen just simply out of out of basic human behavior. And my character gives a couple of great speeches about it. And it's part of what I'm there to teach Aaron, Nicholas's character, is that in from where I'm sitting, having been a character who was a state, you know, a state congressman, you know, a former lawyer, defender prosecutor. I mean, he done all that. What I, what, what I, what I like is that this guy is saying, and what the show is saying is that the DA has got to put somebody in jail. Got to be somebody. There's a murder that happens, catch somebody, put them in jail, go on to the next one. That's the way they work. Get them, find somebody, and if you got somebody who's close, build the case so it looks like it's that guy. Present the case with the power of a district attorney's office, which is stronger than what the defenders have, and make this guy go to jail whether he did it or not. Somebody has to go to jail. Maybe he didn't do it, but he's been arrested three times for petty larceny and this and that. He's a criminal anyway. Let's just put him in jail. 
that what I've learned in that show, because my character has said over and over again that that's what bothers him the most is and where he goes at it with the district attorney and those guys is it, it can't be about that. It can't be about the win. And you mentioned it earlier, win, lose. It can't be about the win. And what you're seeing in the legal system is the win factor needs to matter. I need to win. So even if I'm wrong, I'm going to win. My character gives a really great speech in one of the episodes. He narrates the episode. But he talks about how it starts small. You know, it starts with uh, you fudge something, you got all your case together, and then there's one thing that goes sideways. So instead of ripping apart your entire case, just make that go away. Or just fold it back in without it being totally the truth. And then when you win, everybody goes, you won, you and you feel good, and look what you did. And the next time out, it you're much quicker to fudge. You're much quicker to move something. You're much quicker to lie about something. You're much quicker to put it away. And in that, lawyers over time just keep cheating and cheating and cheating until the game becomes about who's going to cheat the most and the overlooking of cheating. And then that's how people get put in when they don't belong there. Because the motive behind prosecuting them and the motive behind defending them is not pure. It's political. Uh, and so guys go to prison who don't belong in prison just because the DA wanted it out of his in basket, wanted it in the out basket. I got 10 cases in my in basket. I'm going to try to win all of them and get all 10 of the guys I think did it and send them to prison. And Isaac Wright, who the show is based on, had that happen to him. And he spent 10 years in there. It's scary. I think longer. I think Isaac spent longer than 10 years. And scary and horrifying. I, I like being a part of that. Now, when assuming that you spoke to Isaac Wright, now, were the realities of what he was telling you about being a lawyer and also being in prison were there things that he told you that you were you were shocked at? Did you get like a, a much deeper insight into what that that life was like on both sides as a defendant and also his time in prison? Well, you know, he's uh, and uh, yeah, I'm hung with him. He's around a lot, you know. I mean, and and because I I I really love the guy, you know. I mean, he's on my he's a team member of mine. He's a he's a you know he's a you know, we're all part of the same team and it's a team sport. What bothers me and what I get from now, because because I love the guy, is that he was scared. He was a guy that wasn't supposed to be in prison. He says, it's so scary in there. And everybody knows prisons are scary. But you never hear a prisoner say it was scary. They got to be hard. They got to be tough. They get by. But the basic and just it's simple. It's scary. And if you don't belong in there and it's really scary, you shouldn't be in there. And I'm affected more by that than the intellectual, how does it work or how do you defend that or how do you prosecute that? Keeping the emotion. My character is very emotional and cares. 
And so I take that away from Isaac. I wouldn't, if I was his lawyer, I'd, I'd bleed for him to get him out if I believed he didn't do it because it's so scary. Well, I think one thing I really liked about your character, um, Henry Rockwell as well, is that you had, he's a character that has a redemption arc. He obviously had some issues, alcoholism and things like that when he was a state senator. And obviously he's working through maybe guilt, maybe some other issues by help, you know, by, by helping. But I guess it, it, the question that I had, I was thinking like, do you yourself believe in the idea of pe- people are redeemable? That some of these people that, especially the ones, even the ones in the story who are going down some very dark paths as well, such as the attorney general, do you think, and do you believe that people like that can redeem themselves and can change? And Henry Rockwell is an example of Roswell is an example of someone who can, you know, adapt and become a better and, and become the better person. I think that's in everybody. I think he's learned that probably from AA, you know, I think that a lot of that's what he's about is that redemption. He's on that path. He, he is there to the, the boy, the, all the people he put in jail that didn't belong there. Even as a defender, you say to a person the the DA is going to win. I know you didn't do it. That weighs on a person. And I think we're all redeemed. There's nobody that's not redeemable. That's, that's every major dude says that. And I believe it. Whether it was Rama or Krishna or, or Jesus or Abraham or, or Zoroaster or Buddha or Muhammad, they all said that. Every single one has said we're redeemable. And billions of people know that we're redeemable. Um, and uh, the, the, what it said, Jesus said, if you ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive you seven times 700 or something ridiculous. Like, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm not, I don't go to church anymore. <laughs> I went as a kid, but that's how redeemable everybody is. You can be redeemed. You just have to cop to it. And then you have to try to do something about it. But that I think is the game of life. I don't think we would be in bodies if we weren't here to redeem ourselves. Plus, I believe in reincarnation. So all we're here this lifetime to do is get rid of all the crap we've done in all the other lifetimes so we can find nirvana. We can find bliss. We'll never find bliss if we're carrying prejudices or hate or fear or if we're living in the past or if we're living in the future. All of that can be taken care of with redemption. And redemption can only happen if you're willing to say, I need, I need to learn. I need to be better. I need to make adjustments. And if you do that and you get on that path, I don't know if there's anybody that can't be redeemed, at least by a power above my power. I, I, I may not redeem a serial killer. I may not have the ability to redeem uh, uh, you know, somebody that's done horrible atrocities but I believe they can find redemption somewhere if they turn it around. I believe it. Absolutely. Redemption's possible. See, see, I always think like redemption comes with, has to connect with the idea of forgiveness. I always wonder, does the forgiveness have to come from the person looking for redemption? In other words, forgive yourself or does the forgiveness have to come f- and the redemption then have to come from the person that you wronged? Like, is it more, is it internal or is it more external? The role of redemption and forgiveness. You can't put it on somebody else. You can't you can't do that. You can't know the level of their ignorant with they can't if somebody can't forgive you, then you you're asking 
and you're asking a human being, another human being, a normal person to forgive you or you will not have redemption, I don't think that can happen because that person may be faulting you for something you did that was horrible, but they're limited or they wouldn't be in a body. They're normal people. They make mistakes all the time, too. I, I think you got to go to a higher power. I think uh, ultimately, if you're in that suffering mode now, forgiveness from somebody else. Great. If you can get it from them and then that moves you on, that's great. But if they don't get it, I don't think that makes you at a dead end. I think you can get it. And every major dude, I don't care which one you are. If you're a Buddhist, go to go. Imagine Buddha, go to Buddha. If you're uh, if you're a Muslim, go to Muhammad, even though he called himself a messenger and a prophet. He also said he was the same as all those other guys. So if you're Muslim, go to him. Ask him for forgiveness. Don't ask me for, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. If you ask me for forgiveness, and no matter who you are, I have to say yes. I can't not say yes. Not everybody's going to be that way. But if you're Hindu, then go to Rama or Krishna. Imagine them. Love them which is what they all said. Give me this much. I'll give you that much. Whether you believe it or not, they all said it. And somewhere in all of those dudes and on the higher power, I think that's the only place where you can actually turn your life around. Really hard to turn your life around. And I think you have to for complete sort of redemption if you're doing atrocious things, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the character that you've got with Henry Roswell, it feels like the season ends with him. Uh, in my, I would almost argue that he has reached redemption by the effort of trying to help um, Aaron, not necessarily the accomplishment of being successful. It's the effort that has already earned him the redemption, in my opinion. We're, and in season two, have you seen the scripts already for season two? No, no. There's a couple of them that are out there. I'm going to call Hank Steinberg today and most importantly, find out if I can be fatter than I was when, because <laughs> I don't think I'm going to fit in any of my costumes. <laughs> I want to know from that. That's really, and you know, I talked to Hank, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've been through all kinds of phases as an actor, good, bad behavior, but you know, I mean, I, where I, the script sucks and I'm not doing that. And how come nobody talked to me about how I'm going to play this, that kind of, that kind of stuff. But when I started directing, it became much more about, wow, why don't I just hit my mark and memorize my lines and try to make it as good as I can? And I did know, like on 30-something, you know, you know, when you're on a long run, if you're aiming at 100 episodes or something, your character's going to, they're going to have to find new things for you to do that you may not have thought about in your character. So Hank has given me, even in dialogue, Roswell saying, you know, this He's trying to redeem himself through getting Aaron off. He's trying to redeem himself. It's about, it's not all for Aaron. It's for him too, just like what you're saying. And I don't know. I don't ask. I don't ask the writers, what do I got? Am I going to do that? Or I don't make suggestions either. I just, I, I like to see it as it comes. I took this show sight unseen. I did not read the script. Hank called me. Uh, the pilot got picked up and Hank called me and explained to me what he wanted me to do and what the character was. And I said, I'm on, uh, I'm in, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. And they called and offered me my, the first exchange in our negotiation. And I said, whatever Mr. Steinberg wants. 
That's you know, cool. billing. What about bill? I said, whatever he wants. I want, I know now that when a writer's on fire and writing for you and trusting in you that they can be their best. But when I go to the writer and I say, you know, less of this and more of that, unless I'm directing and I do that, that's my job as a director. Uh, but as an actor, it's not my job. As an actor, it's my job to figure out how to make what they wrote play. And if I do that well and they get it back and I've lifted it up a little bit, which would be my hope, then they, they will write more for me. Edswick said to me one time on 30-something, I had been doing a scene with Peter Horton and Rita Wilson, and I, I, want, I wanted to be more of a jerk in the scene, and Peter was afraid I wouldn't be likable. And I said, Susan wrote it icky, and right, I right. disagreed with him. I said, I want to, Susan Chilliday wrote that my character's being obnoxious here and, and ugly, and ugly man, and I want to play that. And and he resisted, and he Peter got up. Peter will do, you know. And I, I we I said, well, let, let's just go away. Let's light it. We'll go away, and we'll figure it out. Ed Zwick came up to me, a directed Glory and Last Samurai and Legend of the Fall and Courage Under Fire, and won an Academy Award for Shakespeare and Love, and he said, "You're resisting direction." <laughs> and I said, I said, was I? I don't think so. I think I'm trying to get it to the text. I'm yeah, trying yeah. to do what I thought the writer intended. And I think the writer intended that, what I was more of that. And, and he said, oh, maybe you're right. And we walked a few more feet. And he said, you know what? You don't complain. Why don't you complain? Don't you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease? And I said, maybe it used to. But nowadays, if I have a squeaky wheel, I just buy a new wheel. And that's what you've seen over my time in the entertainment business. People don't necessarily pander to the complaining, bitching actor who's resisting everything. They just get rid of them and get a new actor in. And, you know, it used to be in the old days, those guys on chips would like lay their motorcycles down as if and then say, bring me a Rolls Royce or I won't come back to work. Uh, and the network would send them a Rolls Royce because there were only three networks and 40 million people were watching. Uh, but nowadays, if you act like that, you're just going to, they're just going to sweep you. And if I like a part, I don't want to get swept. If I don't like the part, I'll say sweep. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> that was at the same time. That was good. It was close. It was close. <laughs> So obviously that's part one of two. Yeah. They had some, well, one, him and Jeff talked for two hours and two, like they had a connection issue and their call dropped, but then they decided to just do a whole new interview afterwards. So whatever. It's cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so stay tuned for stay tuned. part two later today, right? Later today, part two with uh, Big Haas and uh, Timothy Busfield talking more about his career and about a lot of fun stuff. Dang, man. Well, do you want to, you want to take us out? Uh, where are we going? Uh, lunch, dinner, dessert, cocktails, drinks? What are we doing? All of those. All of those. We'll have to wait because uh, we're still on lockdown. And even things are opening up. I'm still not going nowhere, so sorry. I can I can virtually send you a drink, though. I'll send you a picture of a drink. What do you want? Any, anything you want. Man, Sky's the limit. What a way to just ruin the virtual mood. Uh, I could have just said, 
Oh yeah, man. Let me take you out of here. We'll go here. We'll do this. Let me romanticize you. But I, I, I get I all romantical. I, I can't lie. I gotta be truthful and honest, man. Yes, you can. You lie all the time. Only to your face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Only behind your back. <laughs> Only behind your back, and when, look, when you're looking right, right in the eyes too. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so taking us out of this thing. So if you liked that, if you liked hearing Big Haas talk with Timothy Busfield, we have. So many more episodes where you can hear Jeff and Casey and Kenrick and myself and any combination of those four people and even Robert Svensky from Shooting the Sith sometimes and Brendan Gibson comes over and does does them for us on Spoilerverse.com. We have so many more back issues with tons of great creators and artists and writers and just people in the industry that we love to talk to. So go ahead, go over there and check it out. Yeah, and there's a ton of other podcasts that you can enjoy, like Bridging the Geekdom and Misery Point Radio and. Oh, Polygon Warriors, and the, just the list goes on, and you really should check it out. And also, there's some great writing going on right now with the Sarah K Files and, you know, life in general with Jay's Roach's Den. Is it Roach's Den? Roach's Den, yep. God, I always say, I always want to say the Roach Motel. Nope, Roach's Den. <laughs> the Roach's Den. There you go. All right, guys, we're out of here. That is a show. Don't forget, part two is coming later today. It is. It is. All right, I guess there's only one last thing left to do, huh? What's that? In oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind and read more. Just do it. Just read some more. Read all the things. Read all the things.